welcome to Weird Studies, an art and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes and to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Hi, this is Phil. This week on Weird Studies, we're talking about one of J.F.'s favorite films, Jonathan Glazer's 2013 Under the Skin. It's a movie about an otherworldly being, an alien perhaps, that assumes the form of an attractive human, played by Scarlett Johansson, and lures men to an ambiguous but nightmarish end. In the course of the film, we see this being start to yearn, Pinocchio-like, for a real human existence, with consequences that are touching, terrifying, and tragic. This film is sometimes challenging to watch, it was for me at any rate, but it is also beautiful and totally original, and boasts an extraordinary soundtrack by composer Michael Levy, which we discuss at the end of the episode. I was pissed at JF when I got to the part about the baby, but in the end, I was really glad we talked about this remarkable film. I hope you enjoy the conversation we had about it. Now... On to other matters. I have an announcement to make. Weird Studies is independent, ad-free, and would like to stay that way. We were recently approached by an advertising firm that offered to fix us up with some advertisers. They mentioned some sort of remarkable pillow as an example of the kind of thing we might use our show to promote. Now, it was a fine suggestion, and I was flattered and pleased they got in touch with us. But when J.F. and I discussed it, we just couldn't imagine ourselves having an intense session of improvised word jazz and suddenly stopping to say, hey, you know what else is weird? Is how this pillow molds to my head and neck for a comfortable night's sleep, or whatever. I mean, I love money. Don't get me wrong. But if we're going to sell something, we want to sell our stuff. So we're launching a Patreon campaign this week. You can go to patreon.com weirdstudies and sign up for one of three tiers. The cheapest is our Clear Conscience tier. If you like the show but don't really need more of it and you feel bad about enjoying all our dope content for free, you can throw us a dollar a month and sleep well at night. For $3 and up, you can join the Readers tier, which gives you access to our newsletter. This includes expanded show notes with JF's and my tips on how to explore show topics more deeply. It also includes our unpublished new writing excerpts from our correspondence, and thoughts about what we're reading or watching or listening to right now. And finally, for $6 and up, you can get all our newsletters and join our listeners tier, which will include audio extras, recorded conversations we left on the cutting room floor, special subscriber-only episodes, and more. Making weird studies is a deal of work, but it's what we love doing the most, and we want to keep doing it for as long as we still have something to say. So we hope that you'll jump on board with us, join us in our travels, and help us get to wherever it is we're going. We are deeply grateful to all our supporters, the casual fans, the hardcores that listen to all our shows twice, the folks who found a show we did about their favorite writer and are starting to work their way back through the archive. Above all, we're grateful to those of you who write to us, and let us know what you're thinking. We hope our Patreon project will give us new ways to get to know you, and we hope you'll stick around with us for a while. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show.
Well, yeah, if you've got a fever, you can't really do anything. So you just kind of got to go with it. I couldn't even hold a book up to read. I was, I just had to lie there. And, um, yeah, and I was enjoying it. I have to admit that I, the feeling of having a high fever and, like, And being totally absolved of responsibility. Yeah, I don't mind it too much. So you're feeling uh, well enough to record at any rate. Yeah, we'll see how it goes, but yeah, it should be fine. You look a little sick, a little drawn, a little haggard. No, I feel feel a lot better this morning, actually, so we should be fine. Okay, well, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Um, I'm excited to talk about this film, which I didn't know anything about before you recommended it to me. Under the Skin by Jonathan Glazer. Yeah. Who is Jonathan Glazer anyway? I mean, I'm sort of an ignoramus. I don't know who he is. What else did he do? Jonathan Glazer, his first feature was Sexy Beast with Ben Kinsley. Remember that one? I remember it uh, being out. I never watched it. Yeah. That was his first feature. Before that, he made a name for himself as a commercial and music video director. Um, yeah, he made Sexy Beast and then he made a film called Birth with Nicole Kidman, which is quite good, actually. It's set in like upper class New York, Manhattan, that kind of world. And Nicole Kidman is this widow who meets a young boy and she becomes convinced that the young boy is a reincarnation of her dead husband. And then, and then his third feature was Under the Skin. And I think that's it. I mean... He's probably the most Kubrickian of the of the, that generation's filmmakers right now. Him and um, Todd Field, who's another direct director. I think those two guys are very much like Stanley Kubrick in that they take a long, very long time to make a film. The writing process is just this endless cycle of rewrites and questioning and starting over. And you know, like uh, Under the Skin is based on a book by Michelle Faber called Under the Skin. It's a very straightforward kind of book. I haven't read the book, but I've read the synopsis, and the, the film bears very little resemblance to the book. What happened was, after he made Sexy Beast, Jonathan Glazer decided that he wanted to adapt this book. He realized soon enough that that's not really what he wanted to do. Like, there's a quote that I like. He said, I knew that I absolutely didn't want to film the book, but I still wanted to make the book a film. So what he did was basically he took this book about these carnivorous aliens and turned it into what we just watched and turned it into this very bizarre film, which is maybe not even about aliens. Uh, It's not quite clear what these creatures are in the film, but it took him a very, very long time to find the aesthetic and the, the right approach for it. And his North star, as he said, was when he figured out that what he wanted to do was to make a film that showed the world from an alien perspective. You know, so make a film that showed us our world the way an alien might see it. <laughs> no um, wonder you think of him as a Kubrickian director, because basically every Kubrick film exactly is our world from an alien perspective. Precisely, yeah. And uh, there's some very obvious references to Kubrick in Under the Skin, some of the cuts and some of the ways he does things. But I think it goes deeper. I think you're absolutely right. In fact, I think even in a film like Barry Lyndon, which is a film about, you know, 18th century Europe. She's showing you this world from such a strange, detached, aloof perspective, almost like a God's eye view kind of thing that makes everything seem strange. And whereas a lot of directors, through their shot compositions and their blocking and the way they set up scenes, they'll tell you 
subtly what to focus on, what parts are most important. Kubrick and Jonathan Glazer gives you a kind of tableau, a kind of tapestry of things, and you have to decide what's important. It doesn't tell you where the through line is. Uh, you kind of have to find it yourself. You don't so. get the significant close-up of the object that is shortly to be used as a bludgeon in the murder that you know is coming. Right. He doesn't telegraph his punches. What do you think of that? Do you like that? I love that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I immediately, when I was watching this, I was like, oh, okay. That's <laughs> that's why this is one of J.S.'s favorite films. It's that Kubrickian aesthetic that I think of as, like, your aesthetic. Mm. I have a bunch of stuff to say about this film. Actually, especially the scoring, the music. Yeah. Um, perhaps unsurprisingly. That, too, is very Kubrickian. Oh, yeah. And the score is by a woman named Micah Levy. People have pointed out how, especially the music you hear right at the beginning, which is very, in a scene that's very abstract, but you kind of get a sense that it's maybe a human mask being assembled or being, being laminated onto an alien face. Maybe something like that. I mean... Another thing that seems Kubrickian, reminds me particularly of 2001, nothing is ever really said. You just have to kind of make something of what you're seeing. Right. Um, but there's not a lot of exposition. So I'm having to conjecture that that is what you see in the first scene. But you hear this kind of chaos of, uh, it sounds like uh, stochastic strings, like a kind of skittering, rhythmic, and sort of organized, but organized within rough parameters within which it's just Brownian motion. It sounds a lot like Yanis Xenakis, a Greek modernist composer. And in fact, Levy, in one of the interviews that I read of her, says that, that it was directly influenced by a Xenakis string quartet, that music. But that use of what is sometimes called sound mass music, where instead of having, you know, there's a bass line and a melody and some chords in the middle, you know, what our ear tells us is normal musical texture. It's what you hear in almost any film score, any pop song. Uh, instead of that, you have scoring that is much more textural. It's about blocks of sound that have volume and mass and texture and color, to use visual analogies, but not melodies, right. not bass lines, not a clearly defined musical texture. Uh, another director who loves this style of scoring is David Lynch, who uses it almost exclusively in Twin Peaks The Return. But it's a Kubrickian sort of style. You see it in 2001 is the famous example. It uses Ligeti's Atmosphere and, uh, for that matter... The Shining. In The Shining, he actually layers different composers together to create the sound mass. And, you know, speaking of layering together, this one affordance of this style of scoring, one thing it lets you do, is really smudge the line between just sound design, the sounds of the ambient environment, and soundtrack. The two yeah. just shade into one another imperceptibly, which... If you're going for a kind of a weird style, if you're trying to remove a lot of the landmarks, I mean, you were just talking about how filmically Glazer is removing a lot of the shot selection and framing that sort of tells you what's important in any right. given scene. Just blankly shows you a tableau and lets you make of it what you will. Likewise, this kind of scoring is really not interpreting the film for you. It creates an open field of possibilities. Yeah, it's a constant call to interpret. That's the thing about these sound masses, because 
one of the things a sound mass score does is it completely blurs the line between music and noise, right? Uh, signal and noise. So when you hear a noise and you're not quite sure what it is, your mind is constantly trying to identify it, uh, figure out what it what it is, what it means. So you're constantly being told, your brain is constantly being told, what is that? What is that? Where is that coming from? It puts you in a, in a mindset that's... Uh, it's a little alien, alien and alienating um, yeah. and conducive to this sort of film experience for sure. So, yeah, I mean, music has always been a weird filmmaker's best friend. It's almost impossible to create a truly weird effect without music in film. And I don't know why that is, but... Even if it's the absence of music that has been conditioned by the presence of music... So to, to jump around a bit, we haven't even established what the plot of this film is, which we yeah, should we'll, probably we'll do. We'll do that next, yeah. Yeah, but there's a moment where the main character, played by Scarlett Johansson, and calling her a character almost seems wrong. She's just this female alien, maybe, wearing a human suit. Yeah. And there's a point in the film, a very important point in the narrative, where she stares at herself in the mirror for like a good minute. It's got to be oh, yeah. like a, at least a minute, which in film terms, that feels like an eternity. And in that, the music just completely drops away. And there's a very particular kind of music that has accompanied the preceding scene and other scenes like it and has established this almost kind of hypnotic presence in our mind. And the suspension of that, and you were saying a moment ago, it's just something about music. You need music to create a weird mood, even in a moment like that where, where music is suspended. Right. It seems unnatural, and your ears sort of reach out to grasp anything in the auditory mise-en-scene, and that is a weird effect. That's a good point, because I think one of the things this kind of sound mass score does, especially in this film, is it turns all the noise into music. Yeah. Watching this movie, you're constantly being fed this kind of sound mass music, these these strings, and and all of a sudden, you'll cut to a scene in a shopping mall. You're hearing, like... Just people. Confusion of noise, yeah. Just a cacophony. But it occurs on the same plane as the music, so you're hearing it almost as a kind of alien music. Yeah, yeah, totally. Okay, we'll get back to that, but let's give people something to hang on to here in terms of story and what this is about. It's very simple. I mean, so Scarlett Johansson plays, we'll call her an alien, although I think we should get back to that, what this is really about. But an alien who dons a human suit and wanders around Scotland in a van, picking up lonely men and trying to seduce them. And she takes them to this dilapidated house and then basically just... Something happens to them. Something happens to them. Something unspeakably horrible happens (laughs) to them. And what uh, you see, okay, like, okay, so this is a spoiler-intensive environment, our podcast. Anybody who listens to us knows by now all the secrets will be revealed. It actually is a lot like probably a better-known visual analogy is Stranger Things, which I believe actually took yeah. the visual cue from the, the scene of like what happens to these men that she lures back to her place. Turns out she's sort of like a Venus flytrap. She's like using human sexuality or a cunningly simulated human sexuality to lure men where they're they're in this kind of black set. It's just like the black set that Eleven in Stranger Things goes to when she's in her uh, sensory deprivation tank and when she goes into this kind of psychic domain this kind of imaginal or astral domain where she can listen in on russian spies or encounter strange lovecraftian monsters and 
in Under the Skin, you have very similar things. These men are following Scarlett Johansson, who's like looking at them seductively and taking off items of clothes. As she walks backwards. And as she them, walks yeah. backwards, which itself yeah. is just a weird thing. Like people look weird when they walk backwards. Yeah. The point is, she's walking back and staring at them seductively, and they seemingly are unaware that they are in a kind of void universe. <laughs> yeah. A, a black everywhere like a kind of deep inky utterly absorbent black a kind of not even a color just like a non-color something that is inky something is sucked up all light except for the light that falls upon these two bodies in this kind of like void space and as these men mesmerize walking towards the alien woman the female as she's listed i think in the imdb they start sinking into this black, viscous liquid that just swallows them up, and they appear unaware that they're doing so. Uh, right. But this traps them. And then Scarlett Johansson, just completely unaffected, uh, once they're completely submerged, just walks away. Yeah. And she has apparently done her job. She has trapped another human being for whatever and, purpose. And later on, we get a sense of what happens in the black, viscous liquid. One of the men that she seduces sinks into the floor essentially he just kind of sinks into the floor that she can walk on we cut to him and he's in this gel and he's looking around and he he seems just to be confused remember he's just kind of blinking and looking he doesn't seem to be aware of what's going on and he's just floating there and he looks and he sees another guy that she seduced earlier Oh, she actually, yeah, she didn't actually seduce him. She just knocked him over the head with a rock. But anyways, she sees another victim. And then the victim looks at him and he just seems to be bloated and something's wrong. Yeah, like a dead, like, it almost yeah. looks like a, like a dead body that's been left in the water right. for a few days. Yeah, exactly. Like You're that. not sure if he's alive, but then his he seems to be animate somehow. Well, the one guy reaches out and grabs his hand and then the bloated guy who's been there for a few days reacts, actually holds his hand. All of a sudden, there's like this moment of panic or something, and then the bloated guy just implodes and just becomes this kind of shell. There's a loud pop. Yeah. Yeah. Pop. All of a sudden, he's just this like deflated balloon. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, like a snake skin or something. And it's really creepy. Yeah. With like the remnants of his face and hair. But yeah. almost as if you had drawn a face and put a wig on a balloon and then popped the balloon. Exactly. It's fucked up. It's yeah. one of the creepiest things I've ever seen. He's just floating there and all of a sudden it cuts to a shot of a kind of conveyor belt headed for like a red rectangle in the distance. And there's just this meat on the conveyor belt, just like basically just blood and sludgy red meat. So I guess the implication is that Everything with, that was inside this guy has just been turned into some sort of food. It's just been um, extracted. Yeah. That's what Scarlett Johansson's doing in this movie. Just picking up these guys and taking them to this house. It turns out she works in agriculture. Right. <laughs> exactly. She's a farmer, cosmic farmer. That's and, right. And the and we're livestock. But she's not alone. She's not alone. We should mention that, too. She has a minder. Some fucking badass dude in a, on a motorcycle who just follows her around and covers her tracks and makes sure she doesn't get caught. Actually, we learn later that there's at least three of these dudes driving their motorcycles around Scotland. And his job seems to be to make sure that she can do her job and she's safe. He doesn't seem to give a shit about her, like, personally or anything. Clearly, it's just like he is the minder for some kind of 
industrial operation. There's some kind of organized plan that they're executing. She is a working part of that plan, and the motorcycle dude is just in charge of making sure the machinery works. Right. That seems to be what's going on there. And the story is that Scarlett Johansson's character slowly starts to empathize with humans in very subtle ways. We're shown how she begins to to like humans. In the end, she tries to... Or at least manifests curiosity about them. And like, there's a little bit of a Pinocchio thing. The only emotion you really feel is yearning. Like she seems to want to be a human. It's sort of like Pinocchio wanting to be a real boy. Yeah. A little bit. At least that's how I read it. Right. Uh, no, that that's definitely... I was going to bring up Pinocchio as well. I think it's, it's a good analogy. And that ends up being her downfall. That'll spell her doom in the end. And it has a couple of scenes that I find more disturbing than almost anything I've seen. Like, I'm not a horror movie guy. I don't necessarily have a ton to compare it to. But, like, there's a scene where, like, a family drowns. Yes. She's chatting up this guy as a diver who's the dude that she hits on the head with a rock and farms, I guess. But... While she's chatting him up, he looks over and he sees something horrible happening. It's a, it's like a Beckettian kind of scene, really. It's this absurd scene where you have this... So, so they're on the Scottish coast and there's these huge waves just crashing onto the coast. And then there's a dog that's wandered off that's swimming and kind of stuck. Yeah, and then the mother goes in after the dog gets caught in the waves and is drowning. And then the father goes in after the wife and then he starts getting caught in the waves and starts drowning and by the way i have no idea how they were able to shoot that scene without putting those actors in severe danger because those waves look rough yeah that looked dangerous well they were stuntmen yeah i guess yeah um stunt dog and meanwhile their year and a half old baby is sitting on shore watching this happen and screaming and the diver rescues the father with great difficulty but is sort of exhausted and semi-conscious at which point the Scarlett Johansson character takes advantage of his weakened state to knock him on the head with a rock and abduct him and meanwhile it's clear that the father goes back to try and rescue his wife again and drowns and then we just see the baby screaming and screaming face smeared with mucus and tears and then later, that motorcycle dude comes back, takes all of the personal possessions of that family. Clearly, he's cleaning up all clues. And you see him just walk right by this baby that's still crying. It's like, you know, 12 hours later. And it I've never in a film seen such a perfect poetic, horrible poetry, but a poetic image of utter, total indifference. Right. Like we talk often in this show about cosmic indifference because that's such a trope of like Lovecraftian horror. And it also has become such a trope of a sort of post-humanist or really anti-humanist strain of thought that insists upon the indifference of the universe. But like, I feel like often when people say indifference, what are they really imagining? Maybe they look at a, a mountain range or a starry sky and they're like, oh, it has nothing to do with me. And they're actually experiencing something faintly pleasurable, maybe something closer to what Edmund Burke called the sublime. Sublime, yeah. Yeah, but true indifference is pure horror. Yeah. And the spectacle of this poor baby stumbling around on the beach, trying to understand what's happened to it and just knowing that something terrible, terrible, terrible has happened. And the spectacle of this alien motorcycle guy 
just walking by with total lack of concern. Yeah, just it completely ignores this baby. And yeah. I mean, it's, this- it's a spectacle of just of indifference on a level that's just sort of like, okay, motherfuckers, that's indifference. And that is sheer horror. That gave me a bad night's sleep. I made the mistake of watching this before trying to go to bed. Uh, you know what? I, I When I got to that scene yesterday, I was like, oh, I forgot to warn Phil about the scene. <laughs> oh. <yeah. laughs> it's yeah, really I was at bad. Home, like fucking Martell. Leslie was so pissed after, like we watched it together a couple of years ago and that scene really, I mean, I have a, a good friend of mine watched it with his wife and his wife was like, fuck this. She just left the room after that scene. Yeah. it's It's funny because the scene is shot very abstractly. Like, you don't see any member of this family up close. You just see them as tiny little figures in the distance, the perspective of Scarlett Johansson's character. So she's looking at them from, you know, about 100 feet away at least, and she's just seeing this little dog that's gone off into the water, and then this woman, and then this man. And you don't even see the baby until after she's knocked out the guy and she's dragging the body away. And then in the, in the very distant background, you see the baby crying. You don't see it up close yet. You only see the baby up close when the, the motorcycle guy comes by later on. So it's all done super conceptually. Like You don't know any of these characters. They could be any family or no family. You're just seeing it from super far away. And yet, even that contributes to the sense of utter cosmic indifference. Um yeah. But strangely enough, that I would argue is the first scene that that sets Scarlett Johansson's character on the path to empathy or whatever to humanity. You see, I don't. You see, I don't see it because she is as completely unconcerned about that baby as yeah. the motorcycle dude. She is in that moment, but then in the next scene, she hears a report on the radio. Not the next scene, but a few scenes later, she hears a report on the radio about the family, and before that, she hears a child crying while she's waiting in traffic and she looks over and she sees a child crying in another car and there seems to be something developing in her mind everything that's happening to her is leading towards this but uh yeah you know again it's just sort of like showing you a tableau and letting you figure out what to make of it there is unarguably an arc from this total alien indifference to something like empathy yeah which, by the way, the music plays a really interesting role in sketching that out as well. I'm, I'm going to return to the music maybe once or twice more. But it's almost sort of like a graph where you see just a couple of points, a beginning point and, a, and an end point. And everything that happens in between, you're aware there's some kind of progression, but what you're seeing is purely behaviorist. Yeah, It's all viewed from the outside. Right. Again, just as... A normal director, an ordinary director would frame objects in such a way as to give you a sense of what's important in a frame so that you're being taken by the hand and being guided through the narrative at every step. And Glazer doesn't do that. Similarly, he's not giving you cues as to the internal processes of any of these characters. What he's showing you is just behavior. And the thing is that in the long run, that behavior does sketch out a development, a plot development, a character development, if you want. But it's not like there are any particular moments that are, except for maybe that scene in the mirror, um, yeah. that are really narratively marked. And so, yeah, you do see that moment where she's looking at the baby and she's then 
slightly later listening to that report. But at every moment, her affect is totally vacant. I and mean, Scarlett right. Johansson does so much by being just utterly blank. Oh, she's fantastic in this film. Uh, we should mention also that the way they shot it was quite innovative. They used hidden cameras, and they actually had Scarlett Johansson pick up real guys and chat them up. Uh, a lot of those scenes where she picks up guys are real. Uh, those yeah. are real men, and they, they don't know that they're dealing with Scarlett Johansson. So eventually what happens? There's three pickups, and the first two are engulfed in the pool of black sludge. And she's mostly driving around at night. Clearly, she's following a set of protocols. She's always careful when she's chatting up these men to find out whether they're alone or whether they have families. You see her driving around during the day, but she's only doing pickups at night. The third, she finds somebody who's hooded in like a hoodie and we don't see his face. And he has a strangely, slightly distorted voice. So it's like maybe he has a slight speech impediment or something. And she's asking him but like how to get to Tasco's or something. And it turns out he's deformed, like he has a facial deformity. And he's played by somebody who is, uh, I believe, an actor and advocate for the disabled in Britain. I learned only a little bit about him, but I think his name is Pearson. Uh, is Adam, right? Adam Pearson, yeah. He actually looks that way. This is yeah. a real deformity, yeah. Yeah, but anyway, she is there's it's that's the strangest scene because there is a long conversation between them. She manages to convince him that she's going to give him a lift to Tesco's and so gets into the car and he's clearly very uncomfortable uh, and clearly used to being treated very badly on account of his facial features. And she's kind to him and she's saying things like, "Well, you've got beautiful hands," and, and you know, asking him about his experience. And this is the funniest thing that clearly, for him, this is the first person who's treated him like a human being, who has shown true human compassion. And yet, the whole time, you know that this is just a Venus flytrap. This is just an organism mimicking something to lure in the fly. Right. And so it's the strangest thing because the t- scene between them is very tender and beautiful and you're watching it and it's lovely and yet you know in the back of your mind that it's all a put on predation yeah it's predation except it kind of isn't well as it turns out as it turns out this is the one moment where you do see an inner shift in a character because what happens is she lures him back to this place which by the way totally looks like the room above the convenience store in Twin Peaks season three. Yeah. Did you notice that? Yeah. The inside of the house there. Yeah. Yeah. With this old fashioned wallpaper that's like coming off the walls and sheets. And, you know, it's just like this shabby house that's been disused clearly for years and years. Yeah. And she lures him into this house and they're in the black void and he is submerged in that. And then you see her walking out fully clothed, just as we've seen her before, job completed. And at the bottom of the staircase in this shabby, dim house, there's this faded, you know, rusty old mirror. And she catches sight of herself and just examines herself, stares at herself in the mirror, as I said before, for a long time. And then clearly decides to go back and save this one human. 
Yeah. I guess fishes him out of the void and sets him on his way without his clothes. <laughs> she just frees him. He's naked and he just wanders off. Yeah. Um, she does free him. Um, and then her motorcycle minder takes care of him. Um, yeah. Yeah. So clearly kills sad. him. Yeah. That's the moment where she turns that, that long scene where she stares at herself in the mirror for like a minute and a half, at least is, uh, I thought very powerful. And that's when she, then she drives into the highlands and she ends up in this super foggy area. She walks out of the van and then she decides to leave. She leaves her van and she starts to walk around. She goes to a restaurant. She orders some cake. She tries to eat it, but she can't. She ends up meeting this guy who turns out to be quite a charming, nice fellow. Like a decent, quiet man. Yeah. Who takes her in. Who's just worried about her. Yeah. Who takes her back to his place and gives her some food and clothes and a place to sleep. He takes her to a ruined castle for a walk. And then finally they start to have sex. And this is a funny scene where they start to kiss and stuff and she just starts to panic. And then there's this weird scene where she just like pushes him away, sits at the edge of the bed and grabs a lamp and then just like looks at her genitals with the lamp, like just looks down there. She like, she doesn't know what the hell's going on. And after that, she leaves him and then she ends up wandering in the forest. And that's where the end of the film happens, the climax. What do you think they, these creatures are? Do you think they're aliens? Do you think they're like, once again, fairies of some sort? I think they're aliens. You think they're space aliens? Yeah. Uh-huh. I, 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 I feel comfortable saying they're space aliens. When we see at the end, it's a very upsetting ending. Okay, not only does this film have a baby being tormented and presumably dying... And a dog drowning. We also see a woman raped. It's just deeply, deeply upsetting. Uh, she encounters this guy as a lorry driver who rapes her or tries to. Tries to. At any rate. And then in so doing, rips her human like flesh suit. Yeah. And you see this just glossy black inhuman form under the skin, which is clearly just a piece of technology. And this is why I say it feels like a space alien. Uh, and also I have a very Kubrickian little detail that I want to bring up later, which I feel adds a scintilla of evidence to my belief that she is actually an alien. But you see this clear, like completely alien form underneath this skin. And at this point, she begins to take off the human skin and stares at her own face which is still animate which is a creepy fucking moment yeah um you still see the scarlett johansson face still animate and with this look of like shocked sadness on it and she's staring at her own face when this rapist comes up behind her douses her with gasoline and sets her on fire and that is the end of her as i say it's a very upsetting ending certainly the 
sense that this is a technologically super advanced human suit that she's wearing. The emphasis on technology makes it feel like, you know, I mean, something we always say in the show, but do we really know what aliens are? Maybe for the purpose of this conversation, we can say an alien is a fairy with technology. Right. You know what I mean? Like a technologized other. So that's that's the main reason why I think we're dealing with aliens here. The reason I thought of it from a, a more folkloric perspective is because it's set in Scotland and she ends up escaping. She's trying to find solace in this forest at the end. Mm, and an also, point. also, I think that the, the part where he rips off a piece of her skin, you can see this black, her actual real form under the skin. I think that could read as just pure glamour as oh. opposed to as opposed to technology. <laughs> and um, or, it could, or it could be both. It could be Techno- both. I mean, technologized glamour. Yeah, because it could be technology or it could be magic. It's just a shell, right? So I don't know. You're probably I, right. Okay, hey, can pro- I give you my can I give you my little tiny detail that I think yeah, is sure. like suggests alien? Okay, so early on, the first time we see her prowling around in her white van, and of course it's a white van. Isn't it interesting how the white unmarked van has become the figure in contemporary folklore for the thing that abducts? Yeah, like it's the serial killer. It's like Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs, or like the child predator in every anxious parent's imagination. It's always like a white, van. A, an unmarked white panel van. So it's mythically resonant, right? She's driving around, I guess Glasgow. She's driving around a Scottish city in the daytime, and we just see different individuals, always men that the camera is tracking clearly from her perspective. There's an Easter egg in that scene. And uh, I can put this screenshot up on the show notes where there's a man crossing a street and you see like there's a construction site with like, you know, construction sites where they put up like a 12 foot high plyboard wall painted black and people put up posters for Broadway shows or art gallery shows or whatever on this board there's a bunch of posters for real life things. So there's a real poster for a real art gallery show. There's a poster for a theatrical run of Beauty and the Beast. There's a couple of posters further down that I can't quite make out. But right in the middle of the frame where we're supposed to see it, but again, we only see it for like a couple of seconds, are two posters side by side that, so far as I can tell, this was made for the film. One poster on the right side is of the little Space Invaders guy, a little blue Space Invaders guy, and it just says Space Invader. Okay. And next to it is some black poster. You can't read what was originally on it because almost all of it has been torn off. And the torn off sheet of paper, to me, is like a clear foreshadowing of that moment where her skin is torn, and we, we see what is underneath this torn sheet of her right. skin. That is, yeah. And the thing on the right, the Space Invader, which I did a bit of looking around to see if there was something that would have ended up on a poster that says Space Invader. You can't read any of the other words. It kind of looks like it's a f- poster for a film, but I don't think it's a real thing. I think that was a poster that was made for the film. 
That's totally possible. Although these types of crazy coincidences happen all the time when you're shooting in real places. I know that a lot of this film was shot very surreptitiously, run and gun kind of thing, like where they were just filming in actual Glasgow, filming non-actors. It's possible that that just happened and they decided to use the shot because of that. Or it's possible also that, that he set up that poster and then you know, created that, that moment. I don't know, but that's certainly interesting. It seems too good to be true, but yeah. This but it is happens kind of, all the time when you shoot documentary. Okay, so this is a, actually a little microcosm of what always happens with people who are willing to entertain the weird, willing to entertain the idea of magic, for example, and people who are arguing against that. What's always going to happen is like, here's something uncanny, is it a coincidence or is it design? And there's no way to tell. There's no way to tell in life. Like if I do a magical working and there's a kind of really strange coincidence that seems to answer to that magical working. We went into examples in that in our show on Alistair Crowley and the idea of magic. There's never going to be like a decisive proof that like, oh no, that was done as it were on purpose. That's the result of some kind of intelligence or some kind of intention versus that just is one of those things. Which is yeah. one reason why I feel like the weird is always receding. You know, it'll never stand in place for our inspection. It's I mean, always running away from us, but never running so far away from us that we can't still see it. Just sort of like Scarlett Johansson walking backwards and staring at us, but always staying like a little bit ahead of us. Right. Magic happens when you're making films. I mean, I remember when I made my first film, there was a one day started raining and we had some exterior scenes to shoot and we couldn't do them. So we decided to shoot a scene in the basement of this house where the character would go down and find his old, an old jacket of his in a box because his stuff had been stowed away because he'd been gone for a while. And he, he finds this old jacket and then decides to put it on. So we see him going through the basement, and then he picks up the jacket, and we just shoot the whole scene in this basement. And when I'm editing, I notice that in the background, on the concrete wall behind him, there's a heart, a cracked heart painted onto the wall. So a heart with a crack going down the middle, like a broken oh. heart, a broken heart, which made so much sense in terms of what the story was about. This is exactly what this was a story about a, a guy who's heartbroken and trying to put the pieces of himself back together. I couldn't believe it. It was like no one would and believe. It just happened to be there. It just happened to be there. Who would draw a broken heart on the wall? <laughs> just a weird <laughs> thing. But it was there. And of course, everyone would naturally believe that I put the broken heart on the wall to drive the story for but it, no it was just there and that happens all the time when you do documentary you're filming in real environments and all of a sudden as you're putting it together later you notice that the signs that happen to fall into shots or the just little patterns and stuff it just seems to all work it's very bizarre um yeah you know the same thing happens in scholarly research yeah. This is something the scholars don't often talk about, but I've heard so many, and I have seen it actually written about sometimes just in passing and generally in a kind of whimsical manner that sort of dismisses the weirdness of it. But this is something that scholars always are happy to tell you happens in uh, 
research project where, you know, you go to the library to look at a book that you think might be relevant to something you're researching, and the book turns out to be a bust. It's not useful at all, but you find a book that's been knocked out of place or it's been knocked off the shelf, and it's lying right in front of you in this aisle in the library, and you pick it up, and that's the book that ends up determining the next five years of your life. This kind of serendipity is, uh, it's often said that serendipity is the researcher's best friend. Uh, yeah. And uh, this has happened to me many times. And before I had a cognitive place to put events like that, like before I started thinking about any of this kind of weird shit, it's one of those things where you're like, that just happens sometimes. <laughs> you don't think about it too much. But there really is a feeling you have that you're making your luck. You're making these things happen, maybe just by virtue of the fact that you're thinking so hard about something. It's like in magic, where it's like all about focusing your intention on something. You're doing that anyway. You're not doing it necessarily with magical intent, but you're focusing your intention in such a way as it does seem sometimes to just manifest things. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. I've had that experience too of like books falling off the shelf and like, oh, wow, that's exactly. I used to go to the uh, university library and just give myself over to this kind of weird serendipity and find, I mean, so many authors I love, I discovered basically just using the uh, the library as a kind of divining tool. Yeah. Yeah. It's very strange. But Yeah, so I've actually played around with the idea of writing an essay about archival research as a kind of divination, archivomancy, which I was very conscious of doing when I did my 2015 research trip out to the Getty Institute to do work on M.C. Richards. There were so many synchronicities on that trip, so many odd moments of things falling into place. And that was the first time I was like actively trying to court or at least lay myself open to these kinds of synchronicities. Right. Something happens when you set your mind to something, when, when you, you know what you're doing, you're looking for something, and all of a sudden, the world seems to conspire to take you there in a weird way. Yeah. So that, that happens all the time when you're making movies, especially when fiction, I've only made a few short films, drama films, but every time th these moments, these times, these periods of production become very, very charged with magical power, like things happen all the time weird synchronicities happen it's just bizarre coincidences things falling on your lap money coming out of nowhere it's very weird well so. you know Stuart was talking about that our last episode last episode we dropped was our entities episode what was that episode 37 with Stuart davis it won't be the last one when this comes out it'll have been a few episodes ago yeah he talked about the process of making his mantis film or i guess films and uh, repeated synchronicities, really weird out there synchronicities in the making of this film. Right. Not just mantises seeming to fall out of the sky or fall out of nowhere onto almost everybody working on this film, but also, you know, just sort of like, oh, it seems like we're running out of money. And then last minute, like something happens and the project is still alive. That brings up an interesting point about film interpretation or criticism in general. I remember when Room 237 came out, about The Shining, right? Yeah. And John August, who's a Hollywood screenwriter, very well-respected guy who has a blog or used to have a blog about screenwriting, gave a lot of people some good advice 
how to break into the business and how to format a script, etc. So he wrote about, he said, this is ridiculous. He says, all this over-interpretation of every little sign in a movie, people don't realize how much, even in this Kubrick film, how much you can't control, like how much just ends mm. up just happening because of, right. you can't just assume that Kubrick was calculating every little thing. So he basically dismisses that sort of paranoiac interpretation on the basis that the connections people are finding could never have been intended. Mm -hmm. But that's kind of beside the point because once a film is made, the connections are there. Maybe they don't need to have been intended to be meaningful. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. Like maybe a film could be filled with connections that the filmmaker never, ever, ever considered. Does that make the critical act of drawing these connections out and interpreting them, does that make that kind of a waste of time? Or it's does... only a waste of time if you assume that the only intelligence that could possibly put those connections in there is the author's intelligence. Exactly. Which is not you, the case. Yeah. Which, if you are down with the idea of non-local intelligences, of incorporeal intelligences, entities, as we discussed in that show with Stuart, if you are down with those ideas, then the idea that weird shit will manifest in the medium of a film that you're making, an artwork you're making, or an academic article you're writing, or whatever, or a piece of music... That is no more outlandish than any other idea of magical manifestation. Once you've accepted the idea that the entire world offers an arena for uh, peculiar synchronicities or connections that are shaped by some intelligence, and not necessarily yours or mine or any individual human intelligence, once you accept that idea, all of a sudden, any piece of art becomes a field in which you are seeing real magic manifesting. This is what I wrote about in this piece that I did at UCLA, this essay that I wrote for the UCLA Musicology Lecture Series. The Devil's on Your Side, A Meditation on the Perennially Disreputable Business of Hermeneutics, which one of these days I'm going to publish. It probably is part of a book. But I basically make this argument that this is something that always happens in music analysis, for example. If you're doing analysis of a notated piece, you're really deep in the score. This is a field of signs. You will see the damnedest shapes emerging out of that field of signs. And music theorists, music analysts devote lifetime to showing truly uncanny shapes that emerge from different kinds of notated music. And the question that always comes up with like our undergraduate students or graduate students for that matter, people who are not, I guess, socialized into the music hermeneutic biz, which, you know, doesn't have to be about music, right? If you're listening to this and you're, say, in literature studies, it can be the same thing looking at a novel or a poem. You know, there's always going to be that skeptical undergrad who's like, are you just reading into this music? Are you just reading meanings yeah. into this poem just as you might say of the interpreters for room 237 aren't you just sort of imposing your own ideas onto what kubrick did like no way kubrick could have intended this stuff but once you accept the idea that intelligences 
I'm just going to leave it vague like that. Not necessarily the composer's intelligence, just intelligences out there. We don't know what they are. They're mysterious to us. Can manifest in pretty much any informationally dense field of science. Why not a piece of music? Why not a composition? Why not a poem? Why not a film? Right. That's one of the things I try to do in the Reclaiming Art when I talk about the rift and all that is that Essentially, what I think I was trying to do there was call on the reader to approach works of art in a divinatory spirit. If you look at a film like Under the Skin, you watch it in the mindset that the film was made just for you, that it's saying something to you, and you're finding connections that mean something to you. You can't go wrong when you do that, because first of all, you're divining, you're using the film as a divinatory thing in your life, because the great power of these works that we call artworks is that they refract on so many levels of significance and meaning that they are infinitely interpretable. So, yeah, in a sense, you might be reading into it, but you're only reading into it because it allows you to do that. It allows these connections to come to the fore because the works are innately... I mean, I wouldn't even refer to outside intelligences. I would just refer to the works themselves as intelligences. Mm, yeah. um, that they have their own inner mind, their own inner intelligence. They have, they are a form of intelligence that you approach like you would another person. So you're watching a great movie. You're interacting with it like you would with another entity. And it speaks to you. And it has things it's saying explicitly in terms of plot and all that but it has things it's saying through its body language or it's in more subtle ways and to become like a kind of diviner of art is to make yourself able to allow yourself to just pretend that the film was made so specifically for you that any interpretation is viable that yep. basically you can make this film say whatever it will allow and that, to me, seems to be the spirit in which art becomes really transformative. Art becomes a kind of spiritual practice, or at least the appreciation yeah. of art becomes a spiritual practice. I couldn't agree more. I absolutely agree with you. I think that's a really strong notion. Now, the question that everybody asks, and I think it's a legit question, is what's the line between... You, you said, you know, any interpretation that the artwork will allow you. And so, like, what is the sphere of permissible interpretation right. for this game or this divinatory act, for any divinatory act to have meaning, there has to be the possibility of doing it more or less well. Yeah. You know, it can't just be, oh, it's whatever you want it to be, man. Like... <laughs> There's good divination and bad divination. There's yeah. bullshit and there's the real stuff. Some diviners are talented and some are frauds. And likewise, some interpretations are strong interpretations and some are crap. So I mean, like getting back to room 237, the guy who thinks that The Shining is a veiled confession of Kubrick's having faked the moon landing for shadowy forces within the U.S. government is fucking bullshit. It, it annoys me. That, well, that interpretation irritates me. And this, this, I think the same guy who argues that there's a moment where Kubrick has airbrushed his face into some clouds over the Overlook. Well, like, that's another one. That's another guy, I think. Oh, is it? Yeah, yeah. Well, that one's bullshit, too. And it's funny because it's sort of like, 
I have this almost like a visceral feeling of rejecting an interpretation, like it, like bad interpretations anger me. And I think that's not uncommon. I think a lot of people, when they encounter an interpretation they think is bullshit, will react strongly and not just be like, well, I don't see it. But right. as if as if this is actually like <laughs> this interpretation must be crushed and annihilated. But there are interpretations in that film that I'm like, I don't know, pretty strong interpretations. Like the guy who is arguing basically that Danny's long rides through the Overlook Hotel on his big wheel. He maps it out. He actually draws a, a map showing that it's an impossible geometry, that Danny yeah. couldn't possibly have taken those particular tricycle rides. And the idea, I suppose, is that that contributes to the film's mood of vague and inarticulate menace. Right. I totally buy that. I find that a pretty the strong... The idea of the labyrinth, too. Yeah, and the idea of the labyrinth. That, to me, is a really cool idea that hooks up with another interpreter, a different person who's arguing that there's all this minotaur imagery, which all on its own, like there's a ski poster that's supposed to kind of look like a minotaur. And I think... Okay, that I don't necessarily buy, but then when I put it in conjunction with that idea of like the labyrinth, I'm like, ooh, like yeah. something goes off in my imagination and I can play with that. No, I, I like that. Do I think that Kubrick put that ski poster up because it looked like a minotaur? No. Probably not. Probably not. But it's there. And I think that's a perfect example of a kind of a, a rift that wasn't intended, but that is there. And that is real. And that actually, once you see that, once you, you bring the Minotaur into the equation of interpreting The Shining, the film becomes richer. That's mm. very much what's going on at the end. You have Theseus and the Minotaur, and he's he's tracing yeah. back. You know, it's yeah. it makes the film. So I think a, a bad interpretation is one where you're importing new elements that aren't there to begin with. So, for example, the moon landing thing. Yeah, it's, it's true that Danny has a shirt at one, you know, at one part has a shirt that says Apollo. That's about the only, <laughs> the only connection with the lunar missions I can find in that film. Everything else, it's just conjecture, and you can just tell it's just like blind conjecture. He's trying to make the film serve his theory. He's not trying to to make the film yeah. provide some new theory or provide some new way of, of seeing. And you have this elaborate theory resting upon the slender reed of this one sweater that Danny is wearing. Right. And it's just too flimsy a basis for what he wants to do with that interpretation. Whereas the guy whose theory is that the film is about the genocide of the Native Americans, I think there's quite a bit in the film to support that theory. The calame cans are there, like the, the calame baking powder cans. And then also what the... So many Indian motifs in the decor of yeah. the Overlook. The way that they're not mentioned, that this is like it's just something we've buried and we don't mention mm -hmm. anymore. So that's why you don't see it explicitly in the movie, right. but it's constantly haunting you. Like the hotel manager at the beginning said they had to... No, it was built... He actually says it. On he an ancient Indian yeah, burial ground. Burial ground. They had to fight off a few attacks as they built it. He, you know, he continues with something like, um, you know... All the best people have stayed here, royalty, movie stars. And later when Lloyd and Jack are having their impossible conversation, and Jack is like, white man's burden, Lloyd. Right. White man's burden. Yeah. There are many, many references to that. So I think that's a very good theory. I don't know if that's what... It's not the only one. That's the other thing. It's that the film invites you to interpret, and then you have to be responsible enough to 
to work with it, not to try to like fit it into your pre-existing theories, you know? Yeah. And that's a skill that you also need in being a good diviner. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, the beef people have with both divination and the interpretation of art is that it's just imposing your own ego on what you're reading, that it's pareidolia. It's like you're seeing faces in clouds. But there's always the implication that it's like, oh, you're just seeing what you want to see. But actually, one of the things that's really great about a disciplined interpretation of art, or for that matter, disciplined interpretation of like the I Ching or the tarot, is that it's a discipline of like, I don't want to say mortifying the self, but learning how to put yourself in a very much an inferior position and turn yourself into something more like a musician. who, Like, you know, when I'm playing chamber music, my job is to be a big set of ears. And I'm listening to the sounds I'm making and I'm listening to the sounds my partner's making and I'm listening to how those sounds are blending together. And I'm just responding to the whole auditory scene. You know, what actually is like a lamer kind of thing, that the way you play when you're younger and less experienced and you have to, when you become a more seasoned musician, you don't do this anymore, is thinking like, mm, I have ideas, I wish to impose. Nah. It's like this uh, egoistic thing where you have your little planned things, your cute little moves you want to make, and that's just ignoring the reality of the chamber music situation, which is everybody just turns into a big ear and we're all making something and responding to it at the same time but and responding to each other. But that ultimately is a remarkably egoless thing. In fact, like often in performance, and this is true of like solo performance as well, when the music is really happening, you almost feel like you're not there at all. There's a very weird experience where you're playing music and you all just fall into that zone and the performance feels like it goes by in five minutes and afterwards you have no really clear recollection of what it was that you did. Yeah, I would say this is the same with tabletop role-playing, you know, when it's going really well and everybody's thinking of the story. Um, They're serving yeah. the story. Everybody's reacting to this transcendent other that's there. Yeah. And that's what's determining the direction. That's where the intelligence lies. So we're talking about performing, but I think it, criticism is a kind of performance in that sense. That when you're interpreting nice. a film, you're entering into the film and completing it in some sense. You're expanding it. And that's where you get all these real tour de force works of criticism that really reveal vistas of works of art that had never been seen before, that reinvent them for new generations. That's They're at the level of the work itself. You know, those works of criticism are works of art in themselves. So. Do you have any particular critics who you like to mention in this context, people who you think attain that transcendent level? Well, one example that we mentioned recently is William Rowan Thompson's interpretation of Rapunzel. In, uh, in, I've been uh, reading his stuff this week. Yeah. The guy's good. Yeah, he's really good. He's really good. But his, his analysis of Rapunzel, I thought, was just mind-blowing. Um, Beckett's book on Proust, you know, I think is fantastic. Or a lot of what Deleuze, actually. Deleuze's book on uh, Proust as well. I don't know. It's just criticism is not any less creative than art making.
change the subject a little bit. I have a pet point. I, I'm going to negate what I just said, that doing an artistic act well is almost an act of like getting your, your little checklist of things you want to do out of the way and just like responding to the moment. I'm totally going to avoid that and bring up something that I wrote out ahead of time. It's on my little checklist of things I wanted to mention. Okay. So my daughter is a violist, a very good violist. And so I tend to notice viola things. And so my ears perked up a little bit when I was reading a couple of articles, interviews with Michael Levy, the composer who created the soundtrack, the, the film score for Under the Skin. And she's a violist. That's Michael Levy's background. She's a violist. And, you know, there's this very particular sound, the music that's the I won't say the catchiest, but it's this music that just repeats. You hear it again and again in different forms, and it's sort of hypnotic. And it's the music that you hear both when the female, played by Scarlett Johansson, when she's on the prowl, but also particularly when she's seducing these men and drawing them into her void. The simplest form of this music is a kind of two-stroke slow drum pattern, And over that, you hear this warbling, eerie string sound. Uh, and that's, I think, Levy herself playing the viola, playing that viola line. I would say there's two things about that motif that you hear over and over again over the slow kind of two-stroke drum pattern. This eerie, scratchy, slightly detuned, almost sounds like underwater and backwards, kind of. There's two things about that motive that give it that eerie quality. And the main one is timbre. The viola timbre, the tone color, the quality of the sound. Not the pitch, but the grain of its voice, right? And the other thing about it is, uh, and it's easier to talk about, is the actual shape of that motive. So if I refer back to the show we did, Weird Music Part 2, where we talked about Lis Mephisto Waltz, we talked a little bit about the Diabolus in Musica, the augmented fourth or diminished fifth, the tritone interval. So you hear three notes, right? And the boundary interval between them is the interval of a fifth. Which, by the way, when we eventually see this kind of transformation of the female alien where she seems to be feeling empathy in this sort of love scene where she starts kissing that kindly Scotsman who is looking after her. It's the first time in the whole film that we hear something which is a common coin of soundtracks everywhere else, which is a plain major triad. the boundary interval of which is also a fifth. And that fifth interval sounds suddenly really prominently. And in fact, Micah Levy points this out, that at that moment, 
you start hearing pure fifths. It's still a little weird. There's a lot of slidey, microtonal, like working in the cracks of the piano keys kind of sounds. So it's still alien, but it's alien in reference to something that just sounds human in a way that nothing else in the soundtrack has sounded. But it's also, what's really cool, is a transformation of that basic motive that what we've heard all this time is a gesture that has this kind of boundary interval of a fifth. But what we really are hearing is that little twist within it where it's like it's broken into a tritone. Where what we're really hearing is the... You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So yeah. That's, a, that's a very cool compositional thing. And it's one of the very few moments in the film. It's sort of like that moment in, where she's staring in the mirror where we have a moment where there's actually something that's marked that's telling us about an inner transformation. To me, the two big moments in this film that articulate that, one is that scene in the mirror, and for me, the other one is that musical transformation of that rising three-note motif into a pure fifth. Right. But the other thing about that music, that kind of scratchy, weird viola sound over that two-stroke drum pattern, is something that Levy herself says in one of the interviews. This is in an IndieWire interview. And she's describing the sound that she's going for in that. And she says, violas are so harmonic because they contain a lot of air. A viola is not solid. The sound it produces is like a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy of something. Because you get an airiness and creepiness, and there's a struggle in that. The vibrato doesn't ring out. It's dead. And I thought this was very interesting. And so I asked my daughter about this this morning. And she's like, yeah, well... You know, the viola is an unusual instrument because it's an imperfect instrument. You know, the violin, like the, the, uh, the violin is tuned so that the low note is a G, a G below middle C. Yeah. And the violin is the right size for that to be its ideal resonance. And it so happens that that means that the size of the violin is such that you can easily tuck it under your chin. It's a very playable instrument that way. The cello, likewise, is a big instrument. You have to play it between your legs, but likewise, the size of it is well adapted to its voice. The viola is an imperfect instrument because in order to be the right size for its resonance, it would have to be larger than a human being could easily play it tucked under the chin or tucked between the legs. Right. It would be too small to be played cello style, too big to be played violin style. And so almost all violas are a little too small, and they have this slightly boxed in, slightly congested... Sound, yeah. Sound. It's so true, yeah. My brother's ex was a, played the viola, and uh, we all lived together in Montreal for a while, so I'd heard, I heard a lot of that instrument. And it's absolutely true. There's something strange about the sound, something otherworldly about it. But And yet, at the same time, my daughter pointed this out to me, and I thought this was super interesting to think of in relation to Under the Skin. She was quoting Atar Arad, who's a great and very well-known violist who teaches here at the Jacobs School of Music. And he says something to the effect of, like, that the violin is angelic. The sound of the violin is not quite human. It's like an angel's voice and has always been treated as such. Yeah. But that the viola is a human voice. Right. And my daughter expanded on that by saying, well, you know, the human voice has flaws. The human voice is naturally raspy and imperfect. 
Right. You know, we're not angels. Our voices have burrs and cracks in them. And she said the viola is imperfect and its beauty comes from its slightly ragged imperfection. And so what's interesting is that the viola is the instrument given as the almost the leitmotif, the, the carrier motive for an alien. Right. But it's this Pinocchio-like alien that wants to be a human. That wants to be human. Yeah. That's, that's fantastic. And so there's this humanity that's at the core of this profoundly alien sound. I found that interesting. So this is interesting because what you're doing is you're taking an aspect of the film and plugging the film into a, a more expansive tradition by doing that. Another, another moment where something like that happens, I think what you said is brilliant about the viola and, the, and the, how the music evolves over the film and how it becomes human towards the end. Another moment that really struck me was the last shot of the motorcycle dude when he's basically, he can't find Scarlett Johansson's character. And you cut to a shot of him standing on a cliff. And it's basically a perfect reproduction of uh, Caspar David Friedrich's oh, uh, yeah. Wanderer Above the Sea of Fog. Yeah, that's right. Did you notice that? It's like, I didn't make the connection, but you're absolutely right. And that's the last shot of the film before it goes black. Uh, well, no, you go from there to her perspective, just the snow oh, coming down. That's yeah. right. That's right. That's yeah. right. Okay, I'm wrong. It's okay. the penultimate shot of the film. And I thought that was so... In a film that... And one of the things I love about this film is that it mixes two aesthetics. It alternates between a very abstract, very slick aesthetic that pertains to the alien world, so the, mm-hmm. the black set and that mm-hmm. other place, and a very kind of like naturalistic, uh, natural light kind of a basic rough aesthetic that's used when Scarlett Johansson's mingling with humans. And at the end, with that one shot, all of a sudden, it's like it's like that shot doesn't even belong in the movie. It's this beautiful, composed shot that just strikes me as somehow profoundly significant. But then again, it's like another reference point where the film connects with a deeper tradition, romanticism yeah. and all that. So yeah. I thought that was interesting. I love that. Yeah. And that is something that I think is important about this film. I mean, I think a lot of people are prepared to say, oh, this is a work of art because it does the art thing. It has the density and power and expressive richness of a piece of art. And also, you could say, oh, it's a piece of art in an almost a kind of a what part of the record store do you put it sort of way because it's challenging and a little alienating and a little weird and it's not going to be a blockbuster. I don't think it made a ton of money. So it's the kind of film that you look at and you're like, oh, I know what that is. That's an art film, right? Right. Of course, there's a lot of shitty art films that aren't very artistic at all, but you can also call it art from that point of view, from a kind of a more mercantile point of view. But it's also art in an important way that I don't think we've talked a lot about, which is like one of the things that makes art a powerful thing is that art has a memory. Right. There is a tradition that tradition matters because tradition is, to put it in Alfred Kozybski's terms, time binding. It's an organization of memory, of expressive memory. Yeah. Like over the centuries, like in artistic traditions where traces are left, which is pretty much every artistic tradition, even purely oral traditions where there's no notation and there's no writing. What's left is in memories of successive generations, right? It's a different kind of trace. But like, especially for things where 
as in Western art music, there's notation going back centuries. And so there's an accumulation of all the different moves you can make in musical space. And we have traces of those. Or there's a tradition of poetry, which is written down and it goes back, you know, historically even much deeper than the history of notated music. Or the history of film, which is much more recent, but even so is more than a century old at this point. The memory of a tradition, the organized memory of expressive possibilities, the possible moves in expressive space, is one of the things that makes art powerful. Yeah. And, and one of the reasons why I'd like to get back to our Duchamp episode, and you're talking about how, like, a great problem with boiling away art, um, reducing it to concept. Right. Is that it only ever becomes a reaction, like reaction to, like, this last guy did this thing, so I'm going to react to this with this thing. Right. But that's a very different kind of move from, like, an artist who is drawing on this deep well, this deep memory. Yeah. It's not just the last fucking thing that happened. It's not just the front page of the newspaper. You know, art makes moves in the time of deep memory, in a kind of dream time, a collective human dream time. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also find us on Twitter. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening. Thank you.